ora koutou. Welcome to Te Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, the podcast. My name is Dr Sarah Jane O'Connor and I teach science communication in the Centre for Science and Society here at Te Waka. I'm also an ecologist and your host of the sustainability-focused podcast. Today I'm talking to two academics from different parts of the university about how equity impacts on sustainability and how we might meet the challenge of creating a more equitable society. First, I'd like to introduce our guests. Dr Hiria McRae affiliates to Ngāti Whakaue, Ngāi Tūhoi, Ngāti Kahununu, and is partner, head of school, teacher education in the School of Education, and senior lecturer in the Faculty of Education. She works with practising teachers and postgraduate students in teaching in the areas of te ao Māori, science and technology, critical pedagogies, and education for sustainability. Professor Warwick Murray is a professor of human geography in the Faculty of Science. He researches Latin America and Pacific Islands, economics, politics, culture and history. He has a particular interest in ethical trade and ethical value networks and international trade. Kiria, can I begin with you to tell us about how your work and research intersects with sustainability? One of my interests is in making a difference in in Māori communities uh, and specifically providing Māori students with the skills, knowledge, um, resourcing for whatever they want to achieve through education. Uh, and in particular, having access to science education because we know typically Māori students have lower participation in science education, especially when you come to the senior science subject area. And so part of that obviously is having teachers with those capabilities that uh, would look at what students want and listening to what students want and their needs and their aspirations and so that it's up to schools and kayako to and their communities to be able to create that for them. And um, Warwick, can you yeah. tell us a bit about how your research and your work connects with sustainability? Absolutely. Re- really, if you, if you gave geography another name, it would be sustainability. <laughs> it's about the relationship between the earth or the environment more generally and and, and humans and and how that interaction across space you know in, in different places leads to different outcomes in development studies is a particular component part of that which is concerned explicitly with the marginalized economically uh, and and often politically parts of the world what we used to call the third world but we don't call it that anymore because that has connotations that are not positive and in studying that part of the world uh, together with research participants in that part of the world. We seek to understand what's led to that marginality, how it's experienced, and what the potential avenues out of that marginality uh, might be. And by marginality, I mean lack of access to economic resources, lack of access to political power, and suppression of, of culture. So obviously, very important component in that is working deeply with communities. So development geographers tend to have very long, deep relationships with the people and places that they're studying. And can you tell us a bit about some of the, those communities that you have been working with? Certainly, yeah. Most recently, I've been looking for and seeking to try and understand positive and potentially progressive ways out of marginalisation. So I've been focusing on what we call ethical trade, fair trade, environmental sustainability, trade that's uh, certified as environmentally sustainable, and how that enters into communities, how it's adopted, how it's structured, and what the outcomes are in terms of what should be its objectives, 
in to 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 level the the well-being landscape. Um, sadly, uh, we find that often that's not the case, and and the system has become uh, co-opted by others for their own benefit. But there are some very good examples of positive outcomes as well, and it's those ones that um, I've been working on a on a Marsden project uh, to identify successful examples of ethical trade networks. So it's not all doom and gloom, although we often give the impression as geographers that it is. <laughs> Do any of those examples come to mind? Our listeners might be quite familiar with sort of fair trade. Yeah. Are you talking about when you're talking about ethical trade, ethical value networks, mm. how much broader is that than what people might perceive as, as fair trade? Well, people often, uh, they associate fair trade with the label itself, fair trade, which is only one avenue within the ethical universe uh, of, of trade arrangements. What we found is that there's a lot of good work going on there. That particular system itself seeks to put control into the hands of, of small producers themselves. They make their own decisions in communities that are based on principles of equity and sustainability. And uh, through that system, receive a premium. And it, that goes some way towards redressing the problems with the unfair trade system, the kind of orthodox trade system, which is still 97% of the world's agricultural trade. But what we found is that those ethical trade systems that are more direct, that go deeper and longer, work with communities in the sense that they give space for communities to come up with their own solutions, design their own projects, put their own objectives first, are often the most successful. So there are some great examples in, in Aotearoa, New Zealand, of, of direct trade, where companies work very specifically with very specific communities for many, many years. And, and, and in that situation, a kind of mutual dependency or mutual positivism evolves so that the interests of the producers are, are, are better represented in, in the market. So in, in a nutshell, what we found is that uh, some of the larger structures can really go over the top of the problems that we identify. We need deep, long engagement that puts the producers first. Hedy, I think that gives us a, a nice way back into your thinking around being in communities and being relevant to those communities. So it's, I know some of your work is thinking around how education can be really closely linked with communities in which the schools are, are based. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, I'll share an anecdote I share often and I think highlights what I'm assuming many students and not necessarily Māori want to see through their education and schooling. You have this diverse range and so I had those students who were quite clear about the pathways needed to become pilots and engineers um, and enter um, medical positions and mahi. And then you had, if there was a spectrum, I don't want it to have a spectrum, but and then you had students who were saying, all I want to know is how to clean up my awa. So you have tamariki from quite young ages who are extremely aware of environmental issues that are impacting on their whenua, on their marae. And so in this particular case, the student talked about her awa close to her marae, which was being impacted by dairy farming, which isn't obviously an uncommon issue in Aotearoa at all. And so at 15 years old, she's quite clear that she wants to be provided that education where she can have the skills and knowledge to be able to clean up her awa. Mm. 
Tamariki, even within early childhood settings, are quite aware of their physical environment. Mm. And it's not uncommon, this is not only Māori students, but they're provided with a Māori worldview of our physical environment within the education in early childhood settings, in primary school settings, and anecdotally my observation that is often that drops away in the secondary school setting. So you have tamariki in early childhood settings you know, talking about the personification of our environment through, say, a Māori worldview of deities or atua. And so they talk about Papa Tsuanuku and how we are looking after Papa Tsuanuku, the behaviour in Tāne Mahuta's realm or what Ranginui and Tafiri Mātia are doing at the moment. This is a broad you know, reasoning why Māori have used that personification of our environment. It is all about sustainability mm. and, and conservation and that we are part of our physical environment. It resonates that our young generation care about these issues and you're thinking around how to keep them caring. Hiria, we're recording this in Wellington where we've got the Zealandia Sanctuary just up the road and I know that some of your work has looked at taking children and young people into those kind of sanctuaries as part of their sustainability education. I'd love to hear a bit more about that, particularly whether it's equally accessible to students around Aotearoa. That project was about providing access to a whole range of communities, to, to green spaces, and a main issue was around the cost of tamariki and their families in being able to enter places like Zealandia, we know it is inaccessible for a whole range of, of communities. And having that opportunity, students were interested in, well, how could they transfer that experience back into the communities that they live in and their centres and, and their schools. And then it also it sparked for them that the physical environment isn't an immediate issue for a lot of our tamariki. Some of these students said, well, I'm more interested in the homelessness that I have to walk past at my bus stop on my way to school than how to clean up the bush area or the the seashore or the river close to my school environment. With my postgraduate students, that's definitely what I'm teaching is issues of sustainability for Māori and it's about our tikanga, it's around our mātauranga, our reo, obviously, which is all connected to, to our physical environment and all of those different pou, which Warwick would understand as well, being a geographer, and, uh, ensuring that our students and I mean broadly students, have an understanding of the historical, political, economic, social, all of those different, and as well as in environmental and how they all impact on each other. Mm. Warwick, I think that's a nice segue back to you, thinking about fair trade, ethical trade, the choices we make as consumers. Our listeners are all consumers themselves. What should they be looking for when trying to make these ethical and sustainable decisions in their own lives? Well, it's very, it's very, very difficult. And part of the problem is that, um, in terms of ethical trade offerings, there is, there is, there's a lot of label saturation, really. And people don't quite know where to look. It's very difficult to do in terms of what people should be looking for. I would suggest that 
they would do their own research. They would establish their own principles and they would look around. There are, there are lots of ways that you can identify these things. And I'd be led by their decisions. It's almost counterproductive, me trying to say what people should do to choose the right path. Uh, I think it, it should come the other way around. And uh, you're looking at, uh, at, at how people come to that that decision in the first place. And of course, in, in that sense, <laughs> you know, environmental education and, and whatnot is it, an absolutely crucial thing. And the other thing that Hiria mentioned as well is this, this connection between equity and sustainability. And that's something that students are really aware of and, and they grapple with in their minds uh, an awful lot in the sense that they are so interlinked. And you can't have sustainability without equity and you can't have equity without sustainability. It, you know, it really is that interconnected. But of course... In societies around the world, the, the most unequal, you have the, the biggest environmental problems. So there, there is a correlation there. There is a correlation. But it strikes me that the most important thing is not telling people what to buy or what not to buy. It's educating them to make those choices themselves. And I guess also acknowledging that not everyone is going to have the means to make some of these decisions. And so hopefully lifting everyone up, but also for those of us that are in a position to make choices where we can for those who, who might not be able to. Yeah. And... Um, in, in, de- in development studies and for a long time in the 70s the, the paradigm was called the basic needs approach and the idea was that the most important thing is seeking to fulfill people's basic needs so they have the freedom to make those choices still a bit top down but but in the right direction the idea is to free people to be able to make those decisions economically politically and of course culturally Warwick, what have you taken from your work across the Pacific and Latin America in terms of the the, the importance of Indigenous voices and mm. some of these decisions, the, the role around sustainability? That they're utterly peripheralised, I'm sad to say, particularly in Latin America. And it's dangerous ground to compare different societies and, and how marginalised different groups are. But in Latin America, for example... Indigeneity is largely suppressed. People who who may have indigenous roots might avoid bringing that up because it instantly leads to a situation for them personally and their families that that isn't optimal. And systematically over the 500 years of colonialism in Latin America, since Columbus sailed the ocean blue and so-called discovered the Americas, (laughs) called it the New World, you know, since that time, the, the, the whole political and economic structures that have evolved have perpetuated, to use the term that's often the privilege of, of those that colonised. And, and it, it, it's quite stark and, and, and shocking, actually, in Latin America, even to this day. It's only very, very recently, for example, in Chile, that an indigenous uh, law was brought into the statutes and that indigenous were given the same rights as others and recognised as a group. And Chile is considered to be one of the leading nations in Latin America in that regard. There have been interactions amongst uh, Mapuche and various other indigenous groups in Chile who've, had, who've connected with Māori here and compared their experiences and, and, and potential ways forward and so on. But as I say, in Latin America, when you do development geography and you listen to people's stories, and it can get really quite depressing because... It continues to this day, and it's perpetuated in the economic systems as well, profoundly. It really is. And also across the Pacific, in different ways. So what I take from that is that there's a lot to do. <laughs> but, but the way to do it is not to uh, impose solutions from above, because they created the problem. 
What role do you think te ao Māori and Mataranga Māori can or could play in responding to some of these issues around sustainability? Well, I want to take this opportunity to talk about what we have here at our university, which is the development of our living park. And that is one of the most exciting projects that we can be really proud of. And we will be the first tertiary institution to have an Indigenous sustainable learning environment in the world. We have taken the lead from Naitu Hoi, and that's through the leadership of our DVC Māori, Dawania Higgins. Mm. This will be an exciting model to have where there's a whole range of opportunities with it being a pan-learning environment across all of our disciplines and where you have at the centre our laboratory which contain all of our matauranga, our tikanga, our stories and opportunities to be engaged with pedagogy in Māori ways and learning through Māori ways. So our living pa is for me currently the biggest expression of of who we are as Māori in a university environment. Warwick, what do you hope listeners take away from this discussion? I hope that they might uh, see connections rather than divides, that understanding sustainability or at least appreciating sustainability and seeking to pursue sustainability involves those connections and that they're multi-scalar, they're global and local. But often the solutions do begin from within and, and from the ground up and that that's the big error of humanity over the last 500 years to impose solutions from the top there possibly before as well uh, and it's led to all sorts of foreseen and unforeseen consequences that have been detrimental largely to the planet and to humans i, I would suggest but th- there is hope as i say if you, you begin from the grassroots um you let those that wish to make change define that change themselves. At the same time, of course, we still have to appreciate that there are huge global structures that mitigate against that, that are vested in all sorts of things, everything from, from the oil industry to the military complex to the, to the financial sector, etc., which will always and continue to bear down on people and stop those solutions from happening. So we have to understand both the global and the local. So if there was one thing that I would say folks might consider in listening to this is is that that global local interaction and having at least an appreciation of how they interact and and both and are interconnected is the only way to foster sustainability yeah what makes you hopeful around what how we might respond to some of these issues total connection to what work has shared if we're looking at how we are educating our tamariki it's them having the opportunity to understand their immediate environment first. So you have these labels in education, place-based education, environmental education. Fundamental to that is formal education schooling to provide these learning opportunities where they're engaged with their immediate physical environment, that their home environments are acknowledged in their own cultures and languages and uh, is acknowledged 
how can our tamariki make a, a difference in these communities if that's the aim or live comfortably uh, in these communities is they need those opportunities to know the history, know the stories and like I said earlier at quite a young age know or see the issues that impact on their immediate physical environment and then because a learner is confident when they understand the concrete and so when they have that confidence to understand the concrete in the immediate then they will have the confidence to be able to engage with the abstract Mm. and we're also asking for our teacher trainees to have an understanding of the the communities that they're teaching in or learning to teach in Mm. in their centres and their schools and that's through Māori pedagogy that's through them first understanding who they are through concepts like tūranga waiwai, mihi, whakapapa, irrespective of where you're from, about themselves, about their own whānau, how they you know, they, they connect with here, wherever they're from, how they connect to here in Aotearoa, and then when they are working in their centres and their schools, that they need to prioritise, well, what is the history? What are the stories? Who is this community? Who is specifically the Māori communities that surround their centres and their schools? You know, that understanding the context of, of these environments so that they can understand their learners and so that they can make a difference for their learners and do the best jobs that they can. Thank you, Hidia and Warwick, for your time. It's been really wonderful to hear not just about your work but your thoughts in Fakaro around these big issues around equity and sustainability. And I'm hoping our listeners feel as inspired as I am to take some of those thoughts forward. Namahi kōrua. To stay up to date with our latest podcasts, subscribe using your preferred podcast provider. Thank you to Te Koki School of Music alumni Stefan Patton and Kenyon Shanky for the use of their music. From Te Heringa Waka, Victoria University of Wellington, Haere rā.